So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, commencing from verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of God. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for it reveals to us ever so clearly what it means to be your people, that we have this strange mixed identity of being elect uh, recipients of such amazing grace and mercy uh, to be called as your people and to become your children. Um, but as, at the same time, we are exiles in this world, strangers, where this world is not really our home. Uh, but our home is um, a future glorious heaven that we are to look forward to and long for. As we continue on to hear the exhortation, the instructions from Peter about what it means to be a Christian, to live it out, we pray that you will soften our hearts by your spirit to receive your word, and that indeed we'll have a clear understanding of what it means to be a wholehearted uh, disciple of Jesus, a Christian who seeks always uh, to live out your will, uh, as we, and, and to do that in a world that uh, opposes you. Um, and we commit ourselves to you this morning and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, from what I observe, I guess, um, uh, you know, over time, I kind of noticed that there is probably three kind of common or broad categories uh, of Christian, and maybe you would have observed the same. Uh, the first being um, that Christianity is a hobby, and we'll see if this ends up working or not. The first is that uh, being a Christian is like a, a hobby, right? It's, it's one of the many uh, interests that we dabble in and how much time we spend on this particular Christian hobby depends on how much time we have right, and how much interest we have in that at this moment in life. Um, for others, Christianity is you know, a big part of life, a uh, big part of life. So uh, as we take our faith more seriously, uh, it does become one big part right, of many other big parts of our life, uh, like being a student or worker or being um, you know, a son or a parent or a husband or a wife uh, or... or, or um, uh, enjoying rest uh, and play, that's a big part of our life. Uh, it's, uh, it takes up a chunk, doesn't it, of our time and energy. Uh, and 
uh, for some of us, as we uh, press on into that, we find that it's more than just a big part of life. It's actually a growing and growing influence uh, in our life. We transition more and more towards Christian values and behaviors. Uh, and our experience of our faith uh, starts to influence and impact uh, more the, uh, the things that we think and do each day. Now, while our Christian faith may be experienced and lived out uh, in these kind of ways, and I think kind of these three broad categories, it kind of starts off as kind of like a hobby, and then it becomes a part of our lives, and then it becomes a growing influence. I feel like these three are still far short of what a Christian truly is. You see, there's definitely uh, no such thing as a hobby Christian. When you read scriptures, uh, the idea of Christianity as a hobby, it just can't be found. Uh, there's also no such thing really as a partial Christian, that being a Christian is a part of your life. And while it is true uh, that our experience of being a Christian is one that we grow into and it becomes a greater impact and a greater influence into our lives, I think the idea of a growing Christian also falls short of what it truly means to be a Christian. In our passage today in 1 Peter, God wants us to know that being a Christian is actually all-encompassing. It's actually all-defining. Right, it's a completely new life uh, driven by new desires. Right? A new life, completely new desires. So let's, let's dive, dive in and have a look. All right? So 1 Peter chapter 4, starting from verses 1 to 3. Our passage begins this way, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, the Christian, as we see in verse 1 here, takes after or models after Christ himself. It's kind of an obvious thing to say, right, that the Christian models after Christ himself, but it's an, a very important thing to say, isn't it? Uh, in verse 1, it talks about arming ourselves with the same way of thinking. And what way of thinking is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about what he says in verse 1, right, that Christ suffered in the flesh. Right? This is the way of thinking that we have to model, that Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, what does this mean, right, to model us, our, ourselves in our thinking uh, that Christ suffered in the flesh? I think he's referring back to chapter 3, verse 18. So if you look in your Bibles, just the previous chapter, three verses back, uh, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ suffered in the flesh in verse 1 is Peter's way of talking about Christ dying. Right, to deal with the problem of sin. Right, sin has been done away with by Christ dying on the cross. And believers are to arm themselves with the same way of thinking. Right, we who have been united with Christ have been united into his death. We are to think of ourselves as those who have died to sin. We've died to sin. We've also, of course, been united to Christ in his resurrection. And so as we've been hearing over the last few weeks that we've been made alive in the Spirit, born again, right, to a living hope, born again to a new life. And so, basically, Peter's saying we're done, right? We're done with the old life. And for the rest of our days, for the rest of our lives, we're to live differently. Live differently. Now, how so? Well, have a look at verse 2, right? He says, no longer for human passions but for the will of God, right? Not one, but the other. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, human passions here obviously has to mean right, the opposite of God's will, 
right? Complete opposite of God's will. It has to mean a way of life that is driven by desires, that cares nothing uh, for what God wants. Right? Cares nothing about what God wants. Uh, the only thing that matters is what I want, uh, what makes me happy, right? what, makes, uh, what gives me the greatest pleasure and satisfaction. Right? Who cares what God wants? The human desire is driven by saying, this is what I want, that's all that matters. Now, in the next verse, Peter will spell out more on what those human passions are. But for now, before we get to verse 2, I want us to notice um, what Peter calls for believers to do, right? He uses this word, arms, right? Arm yourself with this way of thinking. Now, it's actually a very military language, right? I was going to put pictures up of, like, guns and, and stuff, but I thought it might be a bit too full on. But it's basically the kind of language, right? It's a military, military language. It's fighting language because... Thinking and living this way is an ongoing spiritual battle that you have to have guns, right? You have to arm yourself with. And of course, we're not arming ourselves with guns, but with a way of thinking. Believers are to arm themselves with a mindset about who they are or who we are. Now, the reason that it's it's such a, a, a fighting language is because living out this new life is in a way, like fighting an addiction, like a, like a reformed addict committed right, to being done away with that old way of life and being clean. Now, for an addict, I'm not sure if you've ever been an addict or whether you know an addicts, uh, all habits, all desires will keep on resurfacing. Uh, then you have your old friends from that old life who will keep on offering you that cigarette, that drink, that drug. And they'll keep tempting you and enticing you back into the old ways. Um, I used to be a smoker in the army, right? Just about 80, 80% of people in, in national service smoke. And I smoked for about, I don't know, nine months during my training days. And even though it was only nine months, and I was probably smoking a pack a week, which is like little, uh, most people smoke a pack a day. After, even 12 months after I stopped smoking, when I walked past someone smoking a cigarette, the, the lure of going back into that old habit was so strong. It's crazy. I don't know how people do it, trying to quit smoking after having smoked for years on a pack a day. Now, the fight to say no is very real. If you ever try to break a bad habit, if you ever battle any kind of addiction, then you'll know exactly what I mean. You've got to be ready for the fight. But no is what the believer must keep saying to the old way of life, because that life is dead and buried. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, in verse 3, the Gentiles here is a shorthand basically for the unbeliever, the one who lives for human desires and not for the will of God. It's the old way of life. Now, what kind of life is it? Um, as you look at these words here in verse 3, it's a life of uncontrolled and unrestrained desires, isn't it? It's a life of uncontrolled and unrestrained desires. It's, you know, it's saying, you've got a craving? Well, go on and satisfy it. Right? Never saying no to the base kind of human desires. Right? You desire something? Just go for it. Why should we say no right, to these desires? That's a good question, isn't it, to ask. You know, these, these pleasurable things, and all these things at its base are pleasurable. Um, are they a good thing or a bad thing? Are they from God or not from God? When you think about, the, you think about these things, oh, it, it would seem that, at least in part, they are from God, aren't they? 
Right? Sex is good. Right? Beauty is stunning and to be appreciated. Wine gladdens the heart. And we were made for worship. So these are all good things from God. The problem with sin, though, is that it distorts what is good. Right? What is God-given and God-defined as good. So take sex, for example. Sex is good. Right? Really wonderful within the security and the commitment of marriage. Right? God's wonderful gift to express and grow the lifelong union between a man and a woman who have made the commitment before God and other people. That's where sex is good, really good. But sin has so grossly distorted and destroyed sex in our world. Right? In our world, sex is cheap. And commitment just doesn't matter. It's just your body, just a tool, just a game, just for fun. In our world, it's like do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you, whomever you want. In recent times, uh, on my sort of YouTube feed, I keep getting um, all these videos about feminism and, uh, and um, kind of liberal stuff and all these kind of debates that people have. And I've been hearing this language of the body count. Right, the body count. It's, it's really, I was like, what, what is that? And then it dawned on me that body count is the term that is used to describe how many sexual partners you've got. Right? And they call it a body count. That's, that's tragic, isn't it? To think of, 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 of being intimately united with someone in sex as being a body count. The sacredness of sex, embodying two people as one flesh, is just distorted and destroyed and desecrated and devalued by our world. Unrestrained, uncontrolled sensuality and cheap sex. And the damage is just massive and immeasurable. Consider wine, right? Wine is good. Amen? Steve is like really happy there. It's a gift from God. If you were to do a quick search on Google, what does the Bible say about wine? It gives you about eight, between eight to 12 reasons why it's good, right? Uh, it's a symbol of blessing uh, when the wine is flowing. Uh, the picture of heaven is where the wine just flows and flows. Uh, we also read in, in Proverbs and the Psalms that wine gladdens the heart. It graces celebrations and feasts. Always people go with Jesus. Right? What did he do? He, you know, he, he wasn't content that there was just water left right, in the wedding. Right? His first miracle, as many of you may know, is that he turned water into wine. Right? But overdoing it, right? going over the top, wanting to get more and more high, getting smashed, losing control, acting like a drunken idiot, becoming an addict, an alcoholic, becoming violent and abusive. Another good gift of God, distorted and destroyed, like causing immeasurable harm and damage. You see, living life however you want, driven by sin, distorted, and God-denying desires, right, that time is over for Christians. Right, that time is over. We're done with that. Right, that's not who we are anymore, because that is the way of death. And we're called to live out the new life, desiring what God desires. This is the true way of life, the good life. Now, it's a, it's a life that, uh, it's a radical life that grates against a godless world. Right, we get to a point three now. Grates against a godless world. <clears throat> Have you ever experienced as a Christian, you kind of walk into a room, everyone knows you're a Christian, and then the mood in the room changes? Right, I certainly feel that as a pastor. I'm supposed to be some supercharged Christian. I'm not. But, you know, if people know I'm a pastor, when I walk into the room, or they find out that I'm a, Christian, uh, that I'm a pastor, and then suddenly you see them, you can almost see them rewinding, right, all the interactions they've had with me 
to figure out whether they've said or done anything <laughs> they need to be embarrassed about. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I get that, right? I can see their eyes, right? They're scrolling back, <laughs> the timeline. What have I said? What have I done before this holy man of God? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that, right? The Christian walks into the room, it, it changes. Peter says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised, right, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That's a big surprise to unbelievers when new Christians no longer want to join in anymore, right, on the wild and dodgy stuff right, that they used to do together. Now, by surprise, Peter, it doesn't mean, you know, surprise, birthday party, surprise, kind of surprise, right? It's not a good surprise, it's a bad surprise, is the bad surprise, for instance, of realizing that your Netflix has been cut off because you've been freeloading off your friend's account right, for years. And you guys are laughing because you know it's true. Right? And then they suddenly have a change of heart. They want to do the right thing, and then they cut off right, your Netflix. They change the password on you. And you get angry. Right? Because people doing the wrong thing, they get angry when people start doing the right thing. Have you noticed that? This kind of do-gooding surprise makes people angry. And I hate it when someone comes along and refuses to join in, right? when they insist that, no, I want to do the right thing. And those of you who are in high school at the moment, I think you guys experience this. Right? You get bullied for doing the right thing for some strange reason. It's not like Peter here is talking about a Christian who is like getting out there right? and calling out and condemning right? wrongdoers for their wrongdoing. And Peter's just saying they're simply not joining in. Right? Not joining in is enough to receive a backlash. Now, Steve spoke uh, a few weeks ago about um, uh, being the bad guys. So there's a book from Stephen McAlpine about that, how in the past, Christians used to be seen as the good guys, right? the moral examples. But in recent times, possibly the last, what, 10, 15 years, we're now starting to be seen as the bad guys. But I'm not sure that's entirely true. Right? Since the beginning of Christianity, from the time of Peter, in the first century, Christians have been hated on because Christians hold to values that go against the values of this world because we stand for something completely different from what the world stands for. And we won't conform to the norms of this world and we won't affirm and we certainly won't celebrate what the world affirms and celebrates. And in our world today, that is a hate crime. Right? Not, not only should you not be neutral, but if you don't celebrate what they celebrate, it's a hate crime, right? Uh, it is the greatest sin that we can commit. This is why we're the bad guys, right? We're not moral people. We're immoral for not celebrating their ways. They won't like it and they'll lash out. Right? They'll call us at best, you know, stupid. They'll call us stupid for having these beliefs and these views. They'll say that we're stupid, you know, for repressing our desires. They say that we're dumb for saying some fairy in the sky, some, 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 some god out there tell us how to live. They'll call us haters, right, for not accepting and not celebrating their way of life and behaviors. Now, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon commented, just to show you it's not just this age, but in every age, it's like that, right? This is what Charles Spurgeon said. What a strange world this world is. It speaks evil of men because they will not do evil. Yet has ever been so, the men of whom the world was not worthy have been the very people of whom worldliness have said, away with such fellows from the earth, 
It is not fit that they should live. And we're not welcome here. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise to us that our new life, our new way of life, will ruffle feathers. We mustn't be surprised when we get hated on just for saying no, right, to joining in and participating on what everyone else is doing. Now, as we heard last week, uh, there's no need for us to retaliate, though, right? How do we respond to that? There's no need for us to retaliate, defend ourselves, or be very despondent and downcast. And it's very easy to feel that way, but Peter's saying we don't have to, because God, Peter actually gives us two reasons, right? Well, why we don't need to retaliate. So in verse 5, he says, firstly, that God will be the one who will judge. Right? Those who keep rejecting God and living their own way will have to stand before the eternal, eternal judge and give an account. Right? Everyone, the living and the dead, which is everybody, will have to stand before God, the judge, on the final day to give an account. So uh, we can just leave it to God. Now, the second reason to not retaliate is found in the rather curious verse 6. So have a look at verse 6. It's kind of curious. Right? For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, there's a quite a few different interpretations of this verse, and I won't go through them all, but I think the key to understand this verse is to clarify who the dead are in verse 6. So let me do a bit of uh, John Piper-style drawing. Right? So firstly, we need to note that who was the gospel preached to is someone in the past. Right? So it would seem to be that this gospel was preached to the, in the past, to those who are now dead. Right? That seems to make the most sense uh, to Christians who are now dead. Um, they were condemned, these Christians, by humans. They were perhaps even martyred, right? so they gave out lives for their faith. But in God's view, in God's judgment, they are justified and given eternal life by God. Right? I'm not sure if you can see that, but this is the reason why we don't have to stress about facing the objection, the rejection of the world, because we are justified. All right, Christians who have heard and received the gospel are justified. We are assured with, of life with God forever. And in Christ, by His Spirit, the eternal life of God for all believers is secure. And so this is the second reason why there's no need for us to retaliate, but just to press on in living for Christ. Now, before I press on to the fourth point, I'm feeling a little bit warm. Is it just me? feels like there's a heater going. Is that possible to um, first world Christianity, I know. But I'm so used to first world Christianity that I get a bit uncomfortable. So might as well, since we can, thank God for the aircon. Are we good? All right. Gives you a chance to have a break as well. Everyone good? Everyone still with me? Good? All right. Uh, if you need to set yourself around a bit, this is the good bit. Actually, all good bits. All right. But point four, we're going to press on to living for Christ. Verse 7 to 11. Now, with the mention of future judgment in verse uh, 6, or verse 5 and 6, Peter situates us, or reminds us as Christians about the time that we live in. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. We are at the end of history, right, of which judgment will come, and then eternity. Right, God has a timeline, and what's left on God's timeline is the day of judgment. In terms of the human timeline of this world, the only thing that's left after this is God's judgment. And in these last days, for the rest of our lives, how are we to live for Christ? How are we to live for Christ? That's the concern that Peter has in this last section we're looking at this morning. Now, he begins in verse 7 with a call to self-controlled thinking and clear-minded prayers. 
All right, self-control thinking and clear-minded prayers. Now, let's think about prayer for a minute, right? The first thing he says after saying the time uh, uh, is drawing near for the end to come, and then he says, think about your prayers. That's basically what he's saying. Now, what is prayer? Well, prayer is talking to God. And it sounds so simple and true, but isn't it amazing that we can talk to God, that we have a direct connection, that we have a relationship, close relationship, we can speak to God of heaven and earth directly. Right, prayer is talking to God. And believers are called to pray according to God's will and desires. Right, we see that all through the New Testament, that we have to pray according to God's will and desires. As children of God, we have to ask of God what God wants to give to us. Right, we ask of God what, we, what He wants to give to us. Prayer, thirdly, is also one of the great weapons, isn't it, of our spiritual battle that we fight. So many of you might know Ephesians 6, right, the armor of God. Right, prayer isn't really an armor, it's the whole thing, right? It's praying at all times in the spirit is how the, the armor of God finishes, right? Prayer is kind of the ultimate holding together of all of the, the battle gear in our spiritual fight. Now, since prayer is all of these things and more, then can you see why Peter calls for self-controlled thinking and clear-minded prayers? Right, we have to pray for what we, we pray for what we think about, right? Makes sense, right? Uh, prayer is speaking, so you pray for what you think about. Now, we think about what we really want, what we desire in our hearts. So the question then is, what desires fill your hearts? Uh, we just come from talking about how we, we're no longer living for human desires, but for God's will, and we're called to a clear-minded prayer. So the issue is, what do we desire in our hearts that informs what we think about that we pray for? What fills your mind? What fills your prayers? Where do your thoughts go when being a Christian feels really hard? Right? When, when sinful desire is crouching at the door. When like that previous that, that addict that's reformed, you, you're, you're, you're tempted again to the old ways. What fills your thoughts then? When being a Christian receives a blowback when you're at school or at work or at home, and, and you're receiving blowback for being a Christian, where do your thoughts go? What do you desire to get out of that situation? Do you often re respond by saying, well, it's too hard, right? It's too hard, God, I can't do this. Why me? Why am I facing, right, these things? Is this really worth it to say no to my sin, to stand up for Christ? Perhaps we're thinking in our heads, you know, God, why are you holding me back, right, from these things that feel so good? Not everyone else is doing it. Why can't I join in? God, why, you, why aren't you holding back all these hardships? I'm faithful, I give money, I go to church. Why am I facing all these hard things? Why, am I being, why aren't I being blessed? Where do our thoughts go right, when life gets hard? You see, uncontrolled thoughts not brought under the will of God can lead our prayers astray, and it can lead our lives astray. Right, in this spiritual battle to live for Christ, we need to control our thoughts and be clear-minded in our prayers. We need to know who we are. We need to arm ourselves with the right way of thinking about who we are and who we ought to live for. Now, when it comes to our own thinking and desires, right, we need to control ourselves and rein ourselves in. But when it comes to our actions and desires for others, I think it's the, kind of the opposite, where they kind of lose control and be abundant. I think there's a bit of a contrast there, right? To others, we want to let loose 
with abundance and a generosity of love and hospitality and service. That's what he goes on to say, isn't it? Verse 8, love one another earnestly, right? since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, love motivates us in many ways that helps us overcome sin. You think about it, uh, it, it love motivates us to uh, bear with one another's faults. Right? When someone is sinning against us, loving response kind of puts sin dead in its tracks in a way. Love also encourages us, uh, drives us to encourage and, and to teach and to uh, lovingly rebuke and correct a brother or sister falling into sin. Um, right, love helps us to overcome sin, I think. Now, love not only expresses that we are the children of God, who is love, and that's what love is, right? It also expresses that we are God's children. It also helps us to be able to live for Christ, because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9 Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, when we think of his, uh, hospitality, I think a lot of us uh, think of feasting with friends, right? We think of hospitality, feasting with friends. Now, we invite people over for a meal, we cook up a, a spread, and we enjoy the fellowship, all right? Knowing that at the end of the evening, we'll probably get a return invite. True? Right? You do all this, and, you th- and everyone always, uh, and we are all you know, hospitable and kind and loving people. So we'll say, oh, next time, you come to my place. Right? I cook for you, right? This is kind of the, the Asian way. It's probably also the Aussie way, right? Um, I don't get me wrong. I love a return invite as much as the next person. Uh, and I know we don't do it with the wrong motives, just with the right hopes. But that's not what hospitality is. Come on, let's be honest, right? We kind of hope for that, that people would invite us back. But hospitality, or biblical hospitality, isn't this. Now, that, that's fine, that's good, I'm not criticizing it, right? Uh, it's just social ways. But biblical hospitality is not that. Hospitality literally means love for the stranger, right? It means love for the stranger. It's used as the a category or description of, 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 of what we might call the ministry of mercy, uh, care, right, for the outsider, the neglected, the needy. It's a giving that has no hope of any return invite. No return of anything, in fact, because these people tend to not be able to give anything back, which is why there's a call here to not grumble as we show hospitality, because it's a ministry of giving that often doesn't get any return. But that's what this new life in Christ is like, right? as we love and support those in need of our care. A life where we are not restrained Right, in our, we might be restrained, sorry, in our human desires that go against God's will, but we are unrestrained in pouring out love and care and service. And this is how Peter ends here, right? Verse 10, it's a life of service. Peter says, we've all received a gift, an ability, opportunities, training, resources. In fact, I would say, and I would add, many gifts, many abilities, many opportunities, much training, and a great amount of resources, all given to us by God graciously in order that we might use it to serve others. To use it to serve others. Not to serve ourselves, not to serve our own human passions, not for us to ignore what we've been given and chase our own pleasures. Why would we do that? Right? That's the old way of life, just to look after me. But the new way of life is a life of love and hospitality, sacrificial service, 
the use of our gifts to serve others. And why? Peter ends here in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. In everything that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now living for Christ is to live for the glory of God. And living for Christ requires us to have one another. Right? This is what this, section, this last section is about, isn't it? It requires us to have one another. Right here, you see the three big one another things. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, serve one another. And along with all the other one another passages in the New Testament, I think there's about 49 of them, right, that's directed to Christians, uh, we see that this one another ministry is what helps us to live out our new life in Christ. Right? We don't do this alone. No, we're not alone. In fact, we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. Thankfully, by God's grace, He has given us one another. And He has gifted us all, us all in various ways of being able to love and care for and serve one another. And so if you haven't yet come to the Connect Core Serve, that's this afternoon. That's a plug, all right? I should have put a thing there. Uh, the last time you get a chance to do... No, it's not right. It's not the last chance. The last chance for this block. Right? Richard was taking us through a Serve Connect Course this afternoon. But that's the reason why that's one of our purpose areas, isn't it? To love one another and to serve one another. Okay, let's wrap things up. Now, I begin today by asking us about how we see, one, us, uh, see ourselves as Christians. What, what do we define a Christian to be? Uh, and we talked about how sometimes we might see ourselves as uh, Christianity as a hobby. Sometimes we might see that Christianity is a part of our lives, a, a chunk that, that, uh, of time and energy. And others of us see ourselves in a, in a growing way, right? That, that progress bar kind of increasing. But I hope you've seen today that being a Christian means that we've been, we have died to sin and to its old ways and its desires, right? We've died to one way of life. We are done with those desires uh, of, uh, that belong to a life without God. Right? That's what we're done away with, and it's a brand new life. Being a Christian means a new life in Christ, a seeking of God's will and desires. Now, we hope we've seen that. Now, I want to talk about application in two ways. We talk about application along the way, but I want to talk about two things, right? We can talk about the impossible application. What is it that we can't possibly go away with thinking that is possible, okay? And we're very clear about the impossible application. Can you see that it is not possible for us to hold on to sinful desires? It is not possible for us as Christians to give ourselves a pass in keeping sinful desires as a part of our lives. Have you ever caught yourself kind of saying to yourself and perhaps saying to God, you know, I've given so much of my life to you already, God. You know, but in this one or two areas of my life, when it comes to my sexual uh, appetites, when it comes to my greed about this or that, when it comes to my anger, when it comes to my pride, whatever it is, you pick whatever it is that you've often felt you can't give up. You say to yourself, look, God, I'm going to hold on to that. I've already given you 90%. I'm going to keep on to this sinful 10% of what I want, of my desires. I'm not sure if you ever caught yourself, maybe you might not be as explicit or blatant in saying that to God or to yourselves, but I wonder whether somewhere we thought that, right, that I'm going to hold on to a sinful desire and that's okay. A Christian can't do that, right? 
We can't ever think that we can hold on to any sinful desires. Now, let me, let me uh, say something very clearly, right? Hear me clearly. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect Christians that never sin. I'm not saying that. But at the level of practice, we may struggle and we may succumb to our old desires. But what I am saying that at the, the level of belief and conviction, right, it must be that we have a wholehearted desire to live God's will, to live God's way. Right, the level of belief and conviction, we must say with all of our hearts that, yes, I will not live for sinful desires. I might struggle with it in practice, but I will not, in my belief and conviction, say that it's okay. That we can truly honestly say to ourselves, like, I hate those sinful desires, and I love God's will and ways. God, I really believe, help my unbelief. Right, that's the kind of language that needs to go on in our minds. And in our hearts, right? That is the necessary application from this passage. This is the key thing that we must do. That in our hearts, we must embrace the new life. That we must fight the spiritual battle. That we mustn't give up or give in. Don't compromise at the level of belief and conviction. Don't compromise at the level of belief and conviction. We belong to God. Saved, poured out mercy on us. His own son had to die so that we would die to the old way of life. He, he was raised to life in power so that we would have a new life. We had to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. It's a battle of the mind, isn't it? A battle to believe God's word. A battle to put to death sinful desires. A battle to go against the grain of this world. So friends, how much do we engage our minds? How much do you engage your mind? How much do you arm it to convince yourself that you truly are dead to sin and that you truly want to live for God with all of your heart? That's a battle that we fight with prayer, which is why I think he starts off by talking about how we are to live the rest of our days with self-controlled thinking and sober-minded, clear-minded prayers because you can't hope to live for God without thoughtful and persistent prayer. It's a journey that we walk with others. And living for Christ is a life of growing love and care and service for one another. And the great thing is that all of this is a gift from God. From the beginning, the new life in Christ, all the way through the journey to the end, supply all that we need, all from God. Isn't God great? So shouldn't we get on board? Shouldn't we get on board? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you and we praise you for you are the God of mercies. You've poured out on us um, your great grace that you've given your son who suffered for sins once for all so that sin will be dealt away with, cast aside, Help us as believers to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, to see ourselves so clearly that we have died to sin, we've been made alive in Christ, to live in a new way. In our experience, Father, it, it, it does seem like being a Christian can sometimes feel like a hobby, which we attend to for a few hours a week when we've got the time or energy. 
being a Christian can feel like it is just one part of many big parts of our lives. And in many good ways, Christianity can feel like a, a thing that grows in us over time. We become, become more and more faithful and obedient. But help us to see that underneath all that, what is most true and what is most important to see is that we have died to our old lives, to our old ways, to our old desires, where we cared nothing for what you thought and we just did what we wanted. And that we are now different, we are, we are new, alive in Christ to do your will. Please help us to really arm ourselves with this way of thinking. And we are fed with so many different uh, truths, uh, so many different messages from our world about what we ought to do with our lives. As we seek to live for, for Christ, we are faced with much opposition, that even seeking to do right in the presence of evil can, can cause us blowback and, and cause us to be maligned and, and to be ostracized and to be objected and reviled. So please, Father, we pray you help us to hold firm to our faith. Help us to see ourselves rightly. Help us to press on. Help us in our prayers always to, to think rightly about who we are and to ask for your Spirit's help to keep on living for Christ. We give you great thanks that we don't journey alone. We thank you for that the life of Christ is a life of love and, and service to those in need of great care and concern. And we pray that this will help us to journey along the way with each other. We give you thanks that all of these things are outpouring of your grace, that we do not do this on our own strength. We thank you for the great gifts that you've given us. And having received those gifts, we pray that you'll help us to live out the new life in Christ. For this we pray in Jesus' name.